this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work again. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of, you know, $500,000 to in debt. $192 million. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host, John Warlow. This episode of Built to Sell Radio is brought to you by Prescore. What on earth is a Prescore? Pre stands for personal readiness to exit your company. And here we're looking to evaluate how personally ready you are to leave your company. You know, when you go to sell a business to have a successful exit and look back on it without regret, you need two things. Number one, a company that is attractive to an acquirer, to a company that's built to sell. And number two, you personally need to be ready to exit that business. We found that there are four drivers of a happy and lucrative exit, four ways you can personally ready yourself to exit your business. And by completing your pre-score, you are going to see how you're performing against those four major drivers of a happy and lucrative exit. Just go to prescore.com. From Matt Slane, S-L-A-I-N-E on LinkedIn, if you want to reach out to Matt. Matt is uh, an investor, I think, first and foremost. As you'll hear, he grew up on Wall Street. And instead of starting a business, decided to buy one. If you've ever thought about buying a business, this might be a good episode for you to listen to. It goes into detail on how he identified a potential candidate to buy, how he built up the value of that company over time, making it less dependent on him every year, ultimately selling it for a tidy Profit. Here to tell you the entire story is Matt Slane. Matt Slane, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Thank you so much. Happy to be here. I'm flattered you asked me to join. Yeah, well, listen, tell me a little bit about progressive business media. I, you know, I don't know much about this business, so give me the, the short strokes. What did you guys do? Yeah, absolutely. So Progressive Business Media was kind of the world's leading B2B media and communications company in the home furnishings and gift space. So what that really means is we allowed home furnishing manufacturers such as furniture makers and and gift manufacturers to reach their end users, which were mainly retailers, both brick and mortar and online. Um, So we were that communications vehicle that provided news on uh, what's happening, who's working where, trends, consumer guides um, to the retailers, and then manufacturers were our advertisers that supported the, the revenues of our business. Got it. So if I have a home, uh, home store where I sell sofas and coffee tables and so forth, I might subscribe to one of your magazines and the advertisers that receive uh, or would, would advertise in the magazine would, would be your revenue source. That's that exactly. So when we when we kind of started the business and, and built it and, and, and in the beginning, it was exactly that. It was a magazine and we had advertisers and the retailers. So if you own that, that furniture store, you would read it. So you understood exactly what was going on. And that was called Furniture Today, that publication. And uh, that was kind of your weekly guide to what's happening in the furniture world and what you should buy, what you should put on your store, what's selling, what's not, what's trending. Um, and because we had those eyeballs, the retailers, all the people that wanted to be on their floor would, would advertise, you know, in one way or another to, to get in front of them. So at the end of the day, I always told people, we actually sold eyeballs because we had this audience of, of people that were engaged and we were able to sell against it. Got it. Got it. So how did the business model evolve as digital became more 
prominent? How did you guys sort of, because a lot of magazines have been put out of business, obviously, through the whole digitization of media. Uh, absolutely. So I've always kind of discarded the uh, mainstream thought and, you know, going back six or seven years ago, the thought was then that print was dead. And, you know, obviously that's kind of still the mainstream thought today. Um, but, you know, when we looked at the opportunities, kind of listen to the consumer, which is always a good advice and, and found a really niche um, product that was still printing print magazines and had a really engaged audience and, and people really liked it and had very, very high affinity for it. So um, while print is quote unquote dead, we were able to find a product that was primarily print um, and, and, and do something with it. So how did you stumble into this business? How, did, how does one become the, the, the media guru of the home furnishing space? Yeah, that's, that's, that's a really interesting question. Something I never kind of imagined for myself, but you know, I was, I went to uh, Dartmouth College undergrad and I was kind of steered as many kind of Ivy League graduates are towards the investment banking consulting world. And I went into investment banking uh, for a number of years and I left and went to business school and they steered me back into, into banking where um, I was on the investment management side. And, uh, you know, kind of throughout those years, I always wanted to be the client. When I was working with with corporations, you know, at a, as an investment banker, I wanted to be the, the guy on the other side of the team on the table that was kind of reading the pitch book and trying to make a decision whether that M&A deal was a good one or not. Or when I was uh, on the investment management side, I wanted to be the client. So um, <laughs> I, I kind of took a very different path than, than, than a lot of my peers, I think. And um, I left that world and, um, and it's a tempting world. I, I get it. it feeds your ego and your wallet and, and, every, and you get to live in New York and, and all of that. Um, but I went on a search to become an entrepreneur and um, I kind of grew up in a household um, where my father was an entrepreneur and, and was in business and it was not in the financial world. And uh I thought that was something I wanted to pursue. So I had an itch to, to go out and, and find a business that I thought had a relatively low bar that someone with not a ton of uh, operating experience could do and, you know, have an investment thesis that I thought was kind of manageable. Um, so, yeah. So you bought the business? Yeah. So it was a, uh, the business we, so we acquired a, a number of different assets over the, over the years. It started with a platform, uh, uh, in 2000, late 2012, early 2013, um, where we bought kind of a revenue division of a much larger media company. Um, so really what I got was uh, editors and salespeople. And then I had to build the rest of the platform to make it a standalone company. Who's the we, Matt? Like you keep referring to we. Are, did you have partners in this or? Um, yeah, so I, so I had investors. Um, but, you know, ma mainly it was, it was me going out there and, and borrowing as much money as I can. Um, so when I, when I say we, uh, I'm really talking about progressive business media and the team I put together. Okay. Um, I, I, I always, you know, I believe in the, in the, we approach and you know, the old saying, there's no I in teams. So, um, no, I'm, I'm referring to myself though. I left, I left that world in, in New York and found a business located in North Carolina, a state I actually had never even been to, um, where I now live, um, and, and decided that there was something I could do with this, this little division that, um, was proving to the world that print wasn't dead. So when you say a little division, uh, you're referring to, are you referring to like it was the magazine at the time or what, what exactly did you buy? 
Yeah, so um, it was a large media company that published lots of various magazines and, and other media outlets, websites, some events. Um, they had a B2B division, um, which published kind of that fur- what they called the furniture group at the time. Mm-hmm. So what I really acquired was the brands and those employees that were directly working on the brands. What it did not come with is HR, uh, any finance, you know, any kind of accounting or bookkeeping or, or P&L management, no IT support, um, all, all those things that are kind of part of like corporate did not come. This is fascinating because I know we're going to get to the sale of Progressive, but, but I, and a lot of our listeners are curious about what it takes to buy a business. Yeah. Um, it, it sounds like in your case, uh, you had some investors, you also took on some debt and, and, and the bank helped finance some of this. Is that right? Yep. At, yep. At, um, you know, the capital stack or kind of how we, you know, financed it changed over, over the, over the period of time, but, you know, buying a business, um, it's a, it can be an arduous process. It is not easy. It's, you know, anyone can just go online and go on eBay and, and buy a product. Buying a business is just a, you know, especially, um, one that involves human capital and, and or machinery. It's, it's a, it can be a long process, you know, forget about it being expensive. Um, it, it's not like a piece of real estate where the building is, is the building. It's um, I think a, a little more complicated and, and more difficult. What advice would you have for someone who's looking to buy a business? Yeah. In, in the age of technology, the way to find a business continues to be, person to person. It is in-person networking. It's telling everyone you know, um, whether they're an intermediary, like a lawyer or an accountant who you know, often is dealing with business owners, um, to your neighbors and your friends and your family members that, um, that you're looking. And, and it's, it's a person to person business. Um, and the second piece of advice I'd have is try and define exactly what you're looking for as best as you can and as easily kind of digestible. Um, because asking a general question, I'm looking for a business, really doesn't help someone point you in the right direction. So even if you have no clue what you're looking for, try and narrow down the size, the number of people, the geography, number of people, the geography, um, profitability, um, the product type, whether it's a product or a service, if it's B2B or B2C, or if it's online only, take three, four or five criteria that you think would satisfy the type of business you're looking for and then just tell everyone, you know, and uh, it's actually pretty amazing how many leads you will get by doing that. Interesting. Interesting. Good advice. Okay. So you get this business. I mean, I, I realized, you know, there were many, you know, inflection points along the way, but, but what do you, as you look back between 2012, 2019, is there one point, one strategic move you made that really helped define your success or made your success? Um, I'm not sure there were, there were lots of inflection points, which is a a nice way of of putting the, you know, the struggle that every entrepreneur uh, and the sleepless nights that every one of us goes through at at some point or another. Um, I I think really what made a difference for me was a little bit of a softer thing than a strategic move. And that was understanding the role of kind of a cultural implications when you come into a business that where you come from is not necessarily where you are today or where you're going. And, you know, let me just share my experience. I'm New York city kind of born and raised in that area. Um, That's very much my culture. Right. And, and, and who I, who I was and 
at the time. And, you know, you buy a business in a different part of the country, in my case, in the South, and things work differently. Um, you're only a few hundred miles away, um, but there's a different expectations around how you operate and how things get done. Like they're what? Not, they're not better or worse. Um, like give, me, give me an example of, of, of Wall Street comes to town and, and, <laughs> and how things work differently in North well, Carolina. There, there's, you know, A, there's, there's certainly suspicion, right? Uh, you know, the guards go up and you don't necessarily get um, the truth or the whole, you know, the whole story um, because people are suspicious, they're fearful or whatever it is. It's, um, you know, there's, there's that fear element that, um, you know, new guy comes to town and, you know, New Yorker comes into town. Um, there's something that, you know, you weren't part of, you weren't part of the community or our history, um, both company history, as well as people are really proud of where they live and um, what they're doing for their community. Um, I don't think I fully recognize how important progressive business media, which was not called that at the time when we bought it, but how important that business was to the actual uh, geographic community of, of High Point um, in, North, in Greensboro, North Carolina, which is the furniture capital of the world, essentially. Really? Uh, I had no idea. So how, yeah. many, like, how many employees did you acquire, like when you acquired the business, how many employees did you guys have? Um, there were about 65 uh, employees. Wow. So this is a pretty good sized business. You, you must've yeah. had some significant investors. I mean, unless, you know, it sounds like a lot yeah. of money to buy a company with 65 employees. Yeah, yeah it was, it was, it was, a, it was a significant purchase and um, I was lucky enough to have great support from friends and family there. And um, yeah, it was, a, it was a significant business, but uh, I thought it had just so much more room to grow. I, you know, when, you know, fast forward, we're about a hundred employees. Um, and I'll tell you to go back to your original question about the, the transformation of, of mm -hmm. the a little bit. Um, what I saw was the opportunity to really build out pieces that weren't the focus of the management team uh, before I got there. Um, the management team that was there was doing a, was doing a, a good job of what they were doing. Um, I believed there was a lot of room or runway to grow the digital part of the business, the events and conferences, part of the business, um, research part of the business. Um, social media was kind of in its infancy six or seven years ago. And um, obviously we know how important that is to digital today. Mm -hmm. um, I saw kind of these avenues that I didn't think it was going to meaningfully triple the size of the business. But if I can grow double digits in some of these smaller categories, I could um, kind of supplement print, um, which is, you know, flat to single digits percent growth a year. Um, which is great, by the way, because, you know, you, you, with a big number growing two or 3% a year, um, it, it's a nice cash flow to be able to invest back into other pieces of the business. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. How did you value the company when you bought it? Like, what, were you looking at a multiple of profit or revenue or what, how did you go about valuing it? So that's a difficult question to, to, to answer because it really wasn't a standalone company. Hmm. It was a number of publications um, that had a, a revenue and a cost, but it didn't really represent the full cost of the business because you really had to account for what does this look like as a standalone business outside of a big corporation? You know, so what cost am I going to have to add in? So I really had to spend a lot of time building, you know, a model, if you will, of, of, of what, I'm going to have to hire or buy in order to kind of make this a sustainable growing enterprise. Um, so typically 
you know, print to, to be more specific in my answer, typically a print media in the B2B space trades somewhere between, and when I say trade, I mean, it, it sells or you, you can buy it for somewhere between four and a half to five, you know, call it five times cash flow or EBITDA earnings before interest tax depreciation amortization about anywhere between, you know, five and six times. Um, and, and certain variables will make that, you know, lower by one or higher by one. And then when you start to add in events and trade shows and um, some more sticky revenue um, type situations, um, you know, it can go up seven, eight, nine times. Got it. Got it. That's helpful for sure. So, and you had to build a model to figure out what, what on earth your company would earn if you, you know, you suddenly you graphed on a bunch of expenses that the mothership was sort of paying for in particular finance and technology. Yeah, exactly. And that, that actually makes you a less competitive bidder in a way mm -hmm. uh, because you're basically valuing the business at a lower profit than say uh, another company that had already had all those expenses in there that could kind of bolted on. Was it a multiple bidder situation? Were there other people at the table? Yeah, no. So, so, so the, the best part about it was it was a privately negotiated transaction and, you know, going back to, you know, buying a business, that's obviously the best case scenario is when you could build a relationship with someone where you are the preferred party and they're not creating an auction process um, and they don't hire an investment banker to represent them. Um, we did hire an investment banker on the way out. Um, but, on the way in, we, we, we did not, neither us nor the selling party um, had bankers. And it was, it was that, that's, that's the way to do it if you can. How did you, how did you convince them not to, like, were they, like, how did it work that they didn't have sort of representation or create any sort of auction? You know, it, it all goes back and, and maybe I sound repetitive, back to relationship. You know, in, in this world with all the digital means, it really goes back to spending the time to build a relationship with someone so that they, they trust you and, 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 you know, trust is everything. It's, it's, you know, I'm a, I'm a salesman by kind of by nature, if you look at my strengths and um, it, it's, it's building that trust that you have their best interest in mind and you have the best interests of the company in mind. Um, we didn't come in there and lay anyone off, for example. In fact, right. we hired and we added and, and we, we demonstrated that as the new owner, we're actually going to build this and invest in more than the previous owner could have because of other obligations of their capital. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. Yeah. So what was it that the kind of triggering event that made you want to sell? Cause it, cause you'd only owned it since 2012. Yeah. So a lot of people listening would say, well, that's a really short whole yeah. period. What, what yeah. was it that made you want to sell? Um, that's a really good question. It was, it was kind of the impetus of the sales process was actually because a, um, a large buyer, strategic buyer and a strategic, an operating company, not a, not a private equity firm or investor. Um, proactively reached out to us hmm. um, wanting to buy us. Um, and that happened about a year or a little more over a year before we actually did sell. So that was the, the, the impetus of the process where um, I was basically asked to come to a meeting where um, another company was interested in acquiring us and kind of took me by surprise because I was, you know, call it five years in and I thought I had, you know, been building a, a pretty good company and I've been doing it very, purposefully in order to um, make it attractive and, and make it the best business I possibly could. Um, but it definitely came quicker than, than I had expected. And, and that's kind of led into the, the whole process um, 
of the way out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is what I want to get to. So, so who was the the, the strategic that? Uh, can you tell us who that was? I, I, I can't. Um, okay. I still have the NDA. My NDA with them is still ongoing in terms of the. No problem. Yeah. No problem. So the strategic comes to you. What were you? What was your expectation going into that meeting? Uh, they're obviously a strategic meaning they're, they're a media company. So we're, yeah, I get a sense of the, that it might turn to acquisition conversation or what was your sense? Uh, no, I was, I was actually, I was pretty caught off guard um, in, in the meeting. I was certainly flattered, um, but it really was not, um, it was not, I, I kind of had a sense that maybe that was happening kind of, maybe 10 minutes before walking Why? into the office. What, what happened in the 10 minute period before walking in that made you think that? <laughs> I was trying to either deduce in my head, I either had done something wrong or, um, you know, cause the only other interaction we had with other media companies is when they, we thought they were plagiarizing our stuff. You're going to get your ass sued. Yeah, so, so I was either walking into, we did something terribly wrong and, and this is a, a conversation before we get sued um, or, or they, or they're about to poach a person from us. And this was a courtesy call or, or cause we, you know, we've had those too. Um, or it was, it was something bigger. And, uh, the strategic had recently been, been, uh, uh, acquired by the a private equity firm themselves. Mm. And, um, you know, sometimes when you get acquired by private equity, they want you to go out and buy things. So that's kind of when I put two and two together is kind of sitting in the waiting room saying, wait a second, this could be actually a, a very different conversation than I, than I thought. Okay. So you, you go into the boardroom, pleasantries are exchanged. What happens next? Like, wh- how does it get raised? Uh, you know, it was very straightforward. <laughs> it was, it was, it was, uh, it was, it was just the personality of the CEO um, who was a very, very pleasant person who uh, continues to be my friend today, um, by the way. And, uh, it was just, Hey, we were acquired. We have a mandate. You've built an awesome company who we've got to know. And we've been watching for the last five years. And we think it would be highly complimentary to the business we're trying to build. Um, so why don't we, uh, why don't we talk more for, why don't you think about it? And, let's talk more formally in a couple of weeks. Did he use words like let's partner or let's create an alliance or did he actually come out and say, we'd like to buy you, Matt? Yeah, he was very straightforward. Yeah. We'd like to buy your company. Yeah, yeah. Got it. So what and, was and, it? Go ahead. I was, I was to say, and, and, and he gave me a couple, a couple reasons, um, you know, around, around, you know, the management team we had put together. Um, we had a pretty good vision. We were executing on, on that um, in a meaningful way. Um, and they thought that there were, you know, synergies is the wrong word because it wasn't on the cost side, but there are really synergies on the revenue side in terms of cross-selling opportunities. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great. And so those were the rationale that he provided to you. Got it. Got Absolutely. it. Yeah. And, um, and, and I was, again, I was, I was flattered and um, kind of smiled and shook hands. And um, that conversation continued pretty seriously over the next over the next few months. And uh, did he ask you what you wanted for the company? Um, 
Yes, um, he did, and, and I don't, I don't, I don't think it was a question of, of value to him. I think more of it was was a timing issue. Um, was you know either how quickly can we get this done, um, or you know can we slow down and can we, can we wait a few months because they had some other things going on in, in, in their uh, you know in their own corporate life. So um, in that process. Um, that's when we kind of had to hire some representation to kind of, cause they also had representation. Uh, we had to hire someone as well, just to kind of have that conversation with the, you know, um, and, and that's when the, uh, the other party who ultimately uh, ended up being our acquirer um, was, was found. And, and when you, so, so the, the initial conversation you had with the strategic was not the, the company that you ended up selling to. Exactly. Oh, so, wow. Yes. So, um, exactly. So that we ended up, um, for lots of different reasons from timing to value and otherwise, um, selling to a different strategic, um, who is very hungry for an acquisition and, 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 you know, obviously that that's happened now it's gatehouse media. Um, they have a division, uh, division, a B2B division called uh, bridge tower. And, uh, that, that kind of ended up being the group that, that bought us at the end, at the very end of 2018. Okay. So oftentimes entrepreneurs and listeners to the show will get the question, uh, okay, well, you know, what do you want for your company? And oftentimes they get caught off guard by that question and it happens very early on. And sometimes we make the mistake of just spitting out a number, which is on the top of our head. How did you go about answering the question when they asked you, okay, Matt, what do you want for your company? Yeah, it, it, it didn't happen as, as simply as that, unfortunately. It was kind of more through a, through a process of kind of a LOI and, and bids and things like that. Um, but what I can tell you is what I, what I told them, and that's the reason of kind of why I was going into that process in the first place. And it wasn't only because we were approached. That's what got my head kind of spitting in that direction. Um, but really what was going through my head was, you know, the next level we had, you know, really put together six years of, of professionalizing of the organization, bringing in a great management team that was effective and not only knew their roles, but actually um, their responsibilities and they were enabled to, to, to make those decisions and to do that. Um, so what we really needed after putting that together was scale. Um, and, you know, you see that in so many businesses that, that consolidation where the next stage is just it was for us to scale, we needed scale from everything from healthcare costs were rising rapidly and we needed to spread that over a larger group of employees and our digital business had grown really nicely. Um, and the next step for us was kind of how do we put together a really significant digital agency? to represent our clients? How do we go into the podcasting business? How do we set up a, a professional video studio? We went from doing a couple dozen videos a year and, you know, five years ago to, I think we did four or 500 in 2018. Hmm. Um, but how do we go from four or 500 to, you know, to 2000? Um, and we, we couldn't do that on our own. So that scale question was really important to me. And the, every time I came back to it, the only way I thought we could find the scale necessary was to find a, a strategic buyer that we can kind of morph into and, and use their resources and spread it across. So, um, and, and, and by the way, retention, you know, retention's tough. 
Um, and we, I think we did a really good job and we had great loyalty and great employees. Um, but the truth is we're a small business and, you know, the best ones want to continue to rise up in their career. And this prevent, this provided a lot more options for employees to go into new geographies, different types of jobs, things like that. Yeah. I want to, I want to get to the way you communicated it to, to your people. So at this stage, you're, you're roughly a hundred employees. You've grown from 2012 when you acquired it around 60, you're up to a hundred. So you've almost doubled the business in, in that six year window, at least in terms of employee count. Correct. Yeah. Got it. Okay. So you have this strategic conversation and you're like, the light bulb goes off and say, is like, Hey, maybe we, this is actually a decent time to, to go to market. And yeah. You hired an, uh, like an M&A professional. When you talk about representation, people may not know what you mean, but I'm assuming you hired like a sell-side M&A firm to sort of represent you in the, in the process? Exactly. Yes, we did. Okay, great. And so um, what was that process like? I mean, did, so I'm assuming they went out to try to talk to other media yeah. companies. And- yeah, it was, it, it's really kind of all-consuming um, for a little while, as I think most people have sold their business can attest to. It's... it's um, it is not an easy process. Just like buying is time consuming, you know, selling is also time consuming. What, what I found and was most unexpected, I knew it was going to be time consuming. What I didn't really think about is how psychologically draining hmm. it was. Not only, not only from a time management, right? So you're running a business and doing that as a full-time job. And you're also as a full-time job trying to sell the company. Um, so psychologically, it's just you're splitting your time is just there's only 24 hours in a day. Um, and your decision-making, um, right? Your decision-making changes a little bit um, because instead of always looking out two or three years, you're sometimes not looking out as far. So your decision-making can, can change a little bit. Not that you're not acting in the best interest of the business, um, but you may defer, a, a, you know, buying a new machine, for example, um, or, or something like that. You may not invest at that same level. Um, psychologically, the third piece is kind of a, the emotional piece. Um, and I think a lot of business owners can relate to this. You, for better or for worse, fall in love with your business. Um, you, I, I loved what I did. I woke up every day um, thinking we were doing an amazing job. I thought we had excellent people. Our employees were absolutely everything to the business and to me and our clients. You know, at the end of the day, we all have clients and, um, you know, we had really special ones and they were not, they were people that had become friends over the years. So you're starting to feel maybe guilty a little bit that, that you, I did, I did. I I felt, I felt guilty, um, because I felt like I was, um, in some way going to let them down if it didn't go well. Mm. Um, and, and I think they all generally, um, almost probably liked me and liked uh, what we were doing with, with the business. Uh, again, they didn't all like me from day one. And that goes back to the lessons I learned about culture we talked about earlier. Um, but I think I'd, I'd done a good job over the years of kind of ingraining myself into, into the business and the culture and the geography and our clients and, and, and what we do. And, you know, I think the employees felt like I understood what they did um, and the time it took to, to actually do things, right? Decisions on the spreadsheet and then the implementation of them are very, very different, different things. So, um, so yeah, there was, there was, there was a lot of emotion around, um, around guilt, um, sadness, fear, um, what was I going to do next? Would the business be okay without me, despite having spent the last few years building a business that could be okay without me? 
Um, we all tend to think we're, you know, have some sort of importance. Well, did you, through this process, you've hired the M&A firm, they're out there sort of quote unquote shopping the company, if you will. I don't mean that in a pejorative way, just they're out there doing their thing. Yeah. Uh, did you, did you share the news with any of your employees? How did you handle that? Yeah. So, so I, I very purposely did not share the fact that we are in a sales process with anyone until the very, very end where I, I shared it just with the, my senior management team, because they were going to be the ones that have to do the, um, what we call the kind of the face-to-face meetings and those last, that last round when you actually get to talk with prospective buyers and they get to ask questions and you get to talk about the business and the growth opportunities. Um, so how did you handle that conversation with your senior managers? What, how did you sort of frame it for them and, and what was sort of in it for them? Yeah. So I'm a very candid, open book type of type of person. So what I said to them is exactly what I said a few minutes earlier to you is um, we have done an excellent job. I feel like I've put in everything I can. I've put my heart and soul into this business for the last six years. I'm proud of what we've built and I want it to go to the next level and I'm not going to be able to be the one to take it there. Um, I wanted to try some, I wanted a new challenge and, you know, I, I felt like, um, the results were there and um, I wanted a new challenge in, in my life and I wanted the business to have an opportunity to, to be challenged in a new way. So what was I, the reaction? Uh, really surprised, really surprised. I, um, you know, I moved down to North Carolina um, to be in the business every day. I knew most of the clients, at least the, the, the significant ones, very personally. Um, I was highly involved in, in being the cheerleader. Um, by that point, um, I, I did a lot of management by walking around and um, sitting on committees with employees on, you know, wellness and, and, and things like that. Um, so I, I think everyone thought I was kind of all in and I was all in um, and I was, you know, all into the very last day um, <laughs> because I think it's important, um, but which is also makes it psychologically draining when you're all in on something and trying to sell it. Yeah, for sure. So your, your, your first reaction from your, your senior managers was sort of surprise. Total, total, total surprise. And then did you incentivize them at all in terms of how did, like, what was in it for them to help you, you know, close the deal, if you will? Yeah, absolutely. I've always believed in in treating people really fairly and, and, and sharing kind of the, the, you know, the benefits. So I did incentivize them that if we were able to close the sale and they were to stay on with the new buyer um, for a number of months, um, they would be rewarded financially. And, and you know, a lot of people, a lot of people think uh, that the only way to do that is through giving people stock options. Um, yeah. It sounds like in your case, it was more like a stay bonus or some sort of financial, like you stay and you get X. Again, I don't know if you can talk about it in detail, but that is it. Yeah, I don't think they would love um, for me to talk about it. I think everyone's pretty private people, but um, yeah, I I incentivize them financially um, to stay and and to help integrate the company into the new company and to assure the employees, um, you know, were, you know, just have them stay as much as they could and, and things like that. And how did you ensure that your senior managers, now that they were let in on the yeah. quote unquote, how did you ensure they did not tell the rank and file people, yeah. the rest of the team? 
it goes back to you building a competent and effective management team around you um, who you trust. And um, that's, you know, I trusted them to do what was in the best interest of the business um, for years before that. So by not telling people that was in the best interest of the business, because you wanted people to remain focused um, on the job, A. B, much more importantly, why would you introduce an element of fear or unknown into people when you really couldn't give them an answer? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, to, I've always believed in my management philosophy has, is, is um, to kind of create a safety um, with your employees, make them feel as safe as possible, psychologically safe, and they'll give you their best. And um, I, I just couldn't fathom introducing um, the ideas of, of saying we're for sale and, I don't know what's going to happen because I don't. Um, so I never, I don't, I never, I was never, I think we did a good job, I should say, of, of not letting it leak because I really was never asked. Um, so I, I, I applaud my management team that they, you know, my trust for them was real and, and, and they did a good job. And so to your knowledge, it was, it, it was not made public that people didn't find out until the end? It, it was not. I mean, there's always there's always rumors in every business all the time about everything. And I mean, to be honest, the rumor of us being for sale probably started the day after I bought it. <laughs> right. Um, you know, but it obviously wasn't wasn't true. And there's you know always lots of other rumors. So um, I was I was never confronted or directly asked, or there was never a prevalent sense that something you know doom and gloom was was about to happen. Right. And how are you, um, how are you communicating with your investors? Because you raised some money, it sounds like both debt and equity to buy the business. What's that conversation like as you're going through? All all, all in, you know, as an investor and and coming from the world of of investors in New York, all an investor cares about is return. Right. Bottom line, right? So I, I provided great cash flow and a good return on their equity. Um, and, uh, that's all that did, nothing else matters. Okay. So they're, so they're, they've, they've invested in you. Did they, were you able to give them, um, some dividends or, or some yield along the way as investors? Sure. Yeah. We, we paid out distributions, um, quarterly. based on profit, but a percentage of profit. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Was, their shareholder. Yeah, exactly. And, 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 and frankly, you know, a five or six year time horizon for a non, you know, uh, liquid investment, uh, meaning like you buy an IBM stock today, you could sell it in five minutes. Sure. Yeah. You buy, you buy a business, it, it can be difficult in a long time before you get money out. So um, I think everyone's happy when they, they get their money back plus more. Yeah. And so, um, you were, you, you know, they, they obviously did well at the deal. Was there any pressure? Sometimes we talk to uh, entrepreneurs who say, you know, their original investors, um, I'm thinking of Rand Fishkin, for example, um, you know, especially professional investors or, or venture capitalists, they, they have such a high failure rate that they're looking for, like the winner has to be a huge win, like a 10 X win for, for anybody to kind of, agree to sell, but it doesn't sound like that was a case in your investment. No, you know what I was, it, it, I didn't have an institutional round behind me. I was, um, I was lucky enough that I was able to, I was able to cobble it together um, from people that believed in, in me. 
And um, I'm thankful for that opportunity. That's great. And so they weren't like, hold on for more. You, you got to, you know, don't, don't sell yet. They were, they, you, didn't, you weren't receiving that sort of pressure from them. No. That's great. So it's, it's very different. It's very different being in a, in a venture backed business or, you know, a, a professional private equity firm behind you where, you know, you're one unit in a larger fund. And if the other fund units aren't performing and you are, you're going to be pressured to probably sell earlier in order to compensate for other people. Yeah, is, that's, yeah. Yeah. I, I would, I would, um, I'd urge people that if they're going out to raise money, you want to raise money with people that really believe in, in what you're building and, and, and you as a person and your decision-making abilities. Um, and, and that's, you know, otherwise there's too many factors in your decisions that have nothing to do with the best interest of the business. Yeah. They're yeah. investing in you because of your decision-making abilities. Such good advice. But you know what, to be honest, Matt, I think most of our listeners would 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 identify more with your situation they they either self-funded or they did sort of a, a friends and family round of, of investment yeah. uh, round is probably too formal a way of saying it but but uh uh had s- some investment from uh but not sort of a vc round or whatever so i think you're yeah. right absolutely yeah so how was the actual process of so for those who who may never have gone through the process you it sounds like you hired an M&A firm who went out and 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 had some conversations with different firms the the ones who were interested wanted to meet with your managers and understand the business in greater detail and then obviously some of those or the hope is that one or two or more of those companies that you meet with ends up making an offer right. um how did you have that sort of auction where you said, look at, you know, offers are due on a certain day. Did you do it that way or was it? Yeah. 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 We, we, we ran a pretty formal process and, and that's really because we're in a really, you know, happened to be in the last year, a really good market mm-hmm. um, economically, um, you know, despite what may be going on right now with some of the slowdowns, if you think back six, eight months, um, but really right before that December of 2018 stock market meltdown for about six weeks. But right before that, um, we're in a really hot market. Um, there's a lot of capital out there that needs to be deployed. There are more private equity firms globally than there have ever been. There's global investors that have a lot of capital that um, want to put it in businesses in the United States. You look at just, you know, look at yields on bonds in Europe, they're, they're negative. Um, so all this money is flowing into the U S um, and the only way they could earn a return or a fee on it is to actually put it to work. Mm-hmm. And that's just a fancy way of saying buy something. Right. Right. So, so yeah, there's, um, we're really lucky that we were, we went into the market into a really strong economy where there was, and still is a lot of capital. Um, and that what's, that's really what makes buying a business today. So tough is it's incredibly competitive. I'm not sure. I'm not sure what a, a privately negotiated transaction would be as easy today, although um, certainly happens. How many offers did you guys get? You know, I'm under NDA to talk about, I can't talk about the actual process, um, especially because uh, the buyer was a, a publicly traded company. Okay. I want to I be careful about talking specifically around, around the process and who they bid against and, and things like that. Um, but as the process overall, um, was really an introspective one for me. And I think that's what's really helpful to, would be helpful to the readers is yeah. really, yeah, it, it forces you to think about what the future for you looks like as, as an individual or professional um, and what the, 
future of the business looks like. Um, so you spend a lot of time um, understanding and looking at your strengths um, and, and your weaknesses as well. And, uh, you know, when you're sitting across the table from someone looking at your business, you believe this business is as good as it can be. And they're looking at you like, why didn't you do this? Why didn't you do that? Hmm. You didn't see that opportunity. Why did that fail? And, um, you know, you, it, you have to stay strong because their whole reason for sitting across the table is to poke holes, right? Um, they want to poke holes in what you did in your business, what it can be. Um, so a lot of it is they need to see how, how strong you are and how much um, you really understand your business or how much your management team, more importantly, if you're not going along with the business, really can, can defend the path you've taken. Um, Did you know going in that you didn't want to have a role after an acquisition? It sounds like you wanted your managers to take over, but not, not go personally. Um, I, like I said earlier, I, I think I was um, mentally ready for a little bit of a rest mm. um, and, and mentally ready for a new challenge. Um, there were a number of bidders that essentially wanted me to stay on and, and some it was a condition of their of their offer that I would that I would do so for a significant period of time. Um, and, and for the right situation, I, I'm sure I would have. Um, but I, I just felt that it was time. I had a, a, a two-year-old daughter, um, or she was about a year and a half at the time. Um, I felt like I hadn't spent a lot of time with her um, since she was born because of the travel demands um, and, and the schedule. Um, I also knew that um, you know I wanted to do other things with my family. Um, and I felt that I, I just needed, I just needed some time and, um, we're going to have twin boys in a few weeks. Yeah, congratulations. That's <laughs> yeah. awesome. Yeah, absolutely. You're, you're about to lose any time you thought you had. <laughs> yeah, exactly. but it's, it's been a wonderful break. Uh, I'm sure. So tell, I know we can't speak directly about your deal. So let's just, uh, take things into the third person. Let's say, you had an entrepreneur who you were having lunch with and, and he said, Matt, you know, I'm thinking of, of selling my company. Uh, you know, I've, I've got three or four different offers. I'm trying to figure out how to evaluate the pros and cons to each. Yeah. What advice would you give that entrepreneur who would be presumably looking at, uh, uh, you know, uh, lots of different deal structures, ones that would have an earnout, others that would be all cash. Like what, what sort of advice would you give? Yeah, absolutely. So since I have sold, I have been reached out to by people I know and don't know for advice just like that. Interesting. And, you know, through whether it's through the YPO network or just through friends. Young presidents organization, yeah. Yeah, or, uh, or LinkedIn. Um, it, it's funny how there's almost a lack, some for whatever reason, a lack of resources out there about evaluating that decision um, mm -hmm. because there's millions of iterations of, how it can happen and how it can be structured, which, you know, frankly makes it really interesting um, to put together because there's no, it's, there, there's no kind of clear way to do it. A lot of it's very, very personal, despite be business not being personal at all. Yeah. Um, so a lot of it is, you know, what makes them feel right? Like what is, what feels right for them? Um, do they, you know, do they want to retain a piece of the business? Do they want to kind of go along for a ride because they believe the buyer is going to do something they can't? Do they want to break? Do they want to, you know, do they want stock? Do they want cash? Um, what's the timeline of, 
uh, of the payment? Is it all up front? Is it, you know, over, over a certain period of time with, you know, performance or, or other type of goals? Um, so, so it would take, I, I can sit here and talk to you for hours about all the different iterations of what a, what a sale agreement or, or a purchase agreement could look like. Um, but I think it really comes down to like who you are as an individual and, and what your individual situation. So let's, let's make a leap of logic here and assume that listeners to this podcast are saying, I want the most money up front as I can possibly get. And I don't want an earn out. I don't want to stay on. I don't want to work for some guy. I want my money up front and I want to leave. Yep. What advice would you have for that entrepreneur? Um, I, I think the logic is, is definitely right. People generally want as much as, as much as they can, as quickly as they can. Yeah. Um, my, my advice is get it. <laughs> my advice is get it. Um, you know, you have to, you have to understand, you know, it's like, if you look at like Dale, Dale Carnegie and his, you know, and kind of his rules, one of his rules, actually rule 17, um, is put yourself in someone else's shoes. Like always look at every situation, in someone else's shoes. Uh, and if you could do that, you could pretty much negotiate and or sell them effectively. So a buyer generally wants the exact opposite, right? <laughs> if you look, if you look black and white, you want everything, everything as much as you can up front. The buyer on their side wants as little as possible, as far down the road as possible. Um, as little as possible up front, and as most as possible far down the road. performance, and, yeah. and and they want to pay the lowest they possibly can, right? I mean, even walk into a store, seeing how high you can pay, you want to know what's you know what's the lowest you can pay. Sure. And uh, so, so if you start there, you usually meet somewhere in the middle. Um, we were really lucky in, in our transaction that, um, it was a, it was a cat. I can, it was a, it was a cash transaction that, um, you know, was, was done because they were able to take the business that was ongoing and plug it right in without skipping a beat. Um, so we had set it up very purposely in a way that it was totally self-sufficient and standalone that it could, you know, the parts that they liked about our business could be plugged into their business pretty quickly with, with no, you know, little to no investment at all. Um, you know, some time investment, but no, no capital. Um, so I, I had built it over those, you know, six years in order that a, a strategic or a private equity firm would be able to kind of run it day one. And um, specifically, specifically the two or three things that made it, uh, not dependent on you personally would be what if you had two or three things that you did that that made it attractive to both the strategic and a private equity group yeah i mean one goes back to putting a uh, competent people in charge with decision with real decision making power that you trusted so uh, someone you know a cfo or a vp of finance or whatever the role is called um who understood the numbers and could make decisions and do the budgets and do the reporting and you know flag problems as, as they come up and, you know, someone to run sales and someone to run operations or, or whatever it is. So, you know, you want to, you want the decision making to be done outside of you. You, you can always have approval as I, as I did, I, I can, I can approve or, or not approve. Um, but most, you know, if a decision got to me for approval, it was, it was probably because it was a, it was a difficult and, or, you know, highly consequential decision. Um, but generally they, they, they were able to take, to do it on their own. So that's the kind of one is, is have people around you that, that you trust and, and really 
give them the power to do it. There's, you know, that, that's hard. It's easier said than done. It, you have to give up your ego a little bit, right? You have to trust and give up the ego that maybe you know best and, and realize that no, 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 they actually know best because they're actually much deeper in it than, than you are. Um, let, let me go back to my scenario for a second. So let's imagine another entrepreneur, your, another YPO buddy is saying here, Matt, the, the best deal I can get is 70% of my cash up front, 30% in a three-year earnout, And I just don't have the stomach for it. I don't want to work for somebody. I don't really like the guy that I'd be working for. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the best offer I've got. What do you think? Yeah, that's, a, that's, a, that's an interesting scenario and actually happens all the time because entrepreneurs generally don't want to go work for somebody, um, especially if they don't like them. Um, you know, I, I think I'm a little different that I, I love working with, te- with people and, and teams. I'm not a, a one-man show. I'm very much dependent. I know what my weaknesses are, and I'm very much dependent on, on having a, a, a good team around me. Um, but going back to your scenario – you know, sometimes, you know, you can't have your cake and eat it too, right? Um, it depends on what your personal situation is. If that 70% is, you know, a, enough money to make it worth it for you, you'll, you'll kind of suck it up a little bit and, and, and do the best you can. Um, you could always, you know, a good entrepreneur is also a good negotiator. Um, you know, you're essentially always negotiating, whether it's with your employees or your clients or, you know, product timelines. Um, so you'll try and do something that's a little bit more palatable. Um, and you always have the option to say no and, and say, you know what? It's not what I want. I can do this another year. I believe in the business. Um, and I'll come back to the market in, in a year and, and see if there's someone else out there. And, and that's the, the magic of uh, this country and capitalism is there's, you know, a year will look completely different and there'll be new people out there with new fresh capital waiting to be deployed and, and, you know, potentially get a much bigger offer. Speaking of, of, of new opportunities, um, you're, tell us where you are, if you don't mind sharing, um, and, and kind of what are you up to now? This is yeah. uh, yeah, other so, than being the father of twins. Yeah, so, so part, of, part, of, part of my deal was um, I stayed on as a consultant for three months after, after we closed, and that, and that was really through February of 2019. Um, where I worked with the new owner and the employees um, as they wanted me to, to to help transition clients and uh, make sure everything went, went smoothly. So I was really, I I wanted this company to be successful. I want it to be successful. I want the owners to feel like the new owners to feel like they bought something special and, and they, you know, I wanted to continue to prosper. I've, you know, I've absolutely, I think a lot of people um, leave a business you know, even if you had your best intentions or, you know, they're kind of angry or that guilt or whatever the feeling is where no one can do it better than them. Um, I think, I think I very purposely, you know, was try, tried to avoid that. Um, so at the end of February, um, I decided I was going to take time off and that's really hard for an entrepreneur, um, for someone who's been running a business for a long time or working for a long time to, you know, it probably takes two or three months to actually stop. Um, so I found myself over the course of the winter staying busy doing things. Um, and it really wasn't until kind of spring, late spring, early summer, um, that I was able to take a breath and relax and start to play golf and, um, really kind of explore myself. And, um, you know, 
time is good and bad. Um, I, I totally understand that. And sometimes you need a timeline to make a decision. So I, I have put an artificial timeline on myself. Um, you know, obviously it may or may not happen, but I put a timeline on myself to, um, to figure out what my next challenge is going to be. So I'm pretty focused on that deadline, um, you know, pretty goals driven person. So I, I have a goal now. Um, but you know, what I'm focused on today is, um, twin boys showing up in a few weeks and making sure that, um, everything's ready for that. And, you know, I'm not, I'm certainly not going to do anything before that happens. Um, once they're here and settled, I'm, you know, ready for my next adventure. Um, and during the downtime, I've done a lot of exploring of my own kind of strengths. Um, it's really understanding how do I, how do I play to my strengths? What did I learn? What were my lessons over the six years and, and before that? What am I good at? Um, and how can I apply that in a, in a future role? And um, it's amazing how many opportunities um, come to you, you know, that you just have never thought of or expected. I mean, yeah, it's, it's pretty, not, I mean, every, every charity comes looking for money um, for, for sure, which is great. I've actually, I set a goal. I had never been involved in any uh, kind of local philanthropy while I was working hard. I set a goal of, of getting involved with two philanthropic organizations during my downtime. Um, so I've gotten on the board of a, of an animal rescue um, foster network that I, that I, absolutely and passionate about um and i'm starting to get really involved with the make a wish foundation as well and those are kind of the two things i'm spending a lot of time from a charitable perspective um and then on the, the self perspective is you know again going back to what are what are what are the lessons i learned how do i be a great leader um and what's the type of situation where i'm going to do best that's awesome. Tell me last question where actually second last question if you if i may sure. Describe, Matt, if you could, in as much detail as you can, how you presented your investors with their money back. Did you write a personal check and hand it to them? Did you wire them money? Or like, how did that, how, what was that experience like? It's just a wire at closing. <laughs> it's, 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 it's pretty simple. They, they, you know, it's money, it, you know, as an investor, you're not, you know, it's so funny. You spend so much time as an entrepreneur or CEO of a company worrying about every last detail of which clients upset. How do you make it right? You know, which employee left, who are you hiring to hire? You spend the money on a recruiter. Um, there's all these moving pieces. Um, and, and, and you get rewarded for that. Yeah. Um, as, as an investor, your mindset is, is, is very, very different. It, it's, it's purely numerical. Um, and balancing the, the spreadsheet world that I, I call the spreadsheet world and the action world where you actually like make products and services is a really, really unique skill set. And not that I ever went out to build this skill set, but what I've kind of been labeled in, you know, in the professional world, if you will, is this kind of private equity operator, right? Where I'm, I'm able to, because of my investment banking background, I, I, I understand the financial investors kind of desires and, and who they are and what they want. But what I really love to do is take that and, and, and make it into action, right? Hire John to build this team in order to accomplish X because that will create a 70% um, margin that will bring up total margins on the company by 3%, which means 
the value of the company is X instead of Y. Right. And, um, you know, there's a real disconnect, I believe, in the world today between um, the investor land and the corporate kind of company land. Hmm. And more managers throughout the whole organization can understand that, that connection. I think, I think the better we will all be. Um, and that's really what I'm focused on right now and looking at, you know, my future roles or what I want to do is um, most of my conversations are focused around taking companies that are not performing at what the investor believes to be the highest mm. um, and, and, and going in there and, and making them better. Um, so translating spreadsheets into tactics. Um, and, and that's not a, a, it turns out that's not a very common skill set. Um, so that's a, you know, something obviously that I'm, I'm building on. Well, sounds like you have it in spades. Matt, last question. Where can people reach out if they want to say hi? And uh, is LinkedIn the best way to do that? Or Absolutely. Matt, Matt Slane or Matthew Slane on, on LinkedIn would be great. Uh, would love to, would love to talk to any entrepreneur out there who is building, running or, or, or selling a, a business. I, you know, I benefited so much during the process from, um, people out there who sat down with me, had coffee, um, had sold their companies, gave me words of, of advice or wisdom or just shared an experience. Um, my YPO forum was, was integral in, uh, in that whole process, integral. And um, I'm happy to, to do that. I, I love awesome. talking to people and meeting people. Uh, Matt Slane, S-L-A-I-N-E, if I'm getting that correct. Matt, thanks very much for doing this. It was great to meet you. Thanks, John. Appreciate it. Appreciate the time. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at Facebook.com slash Built to Sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. Thanks for listening.